Shall we pray as we come to read from God's word and, as Di said, read from the book of Colossians. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you you are a good God. And we pray that during this time, the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high and glorified, not only as I speak, but also in each of our hearts as we hear the words of God read from Colossians. And as I preach, Lord God, just, we just want Jesus to be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the verses I'm about to read to you are absolutely spectacular. They are spectacular verses from the Bible. They are focused entirely on the brilliance and majesty and power and love of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes these verses so spectacular because they're focused on how brilliant Jesus is. And let me tell you um, something that you should all know, but let me tell you this. When you spend time fixing your eyes on how fantastic Jesus is, that is time very well spent. Time fixing your eyes upon Jesus Christ and his glory and his majesty and his beauty and his love. So let me read to you from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 29. Um, do I need to move my thing? I'm just getting a lot of rustling. Is that slightly better? Anyway, can you all hear me? Okay, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 29. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Oh, as I preach this morning... May we all appreciate the glory and the magnificence of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ once again and in a deeper way than ever before. Because in those verses, particularly the first half of those verses that I read to you, there are seven reasons to make Christ 
your number one. Seven reasons to make Christ the number one in your life. To make him the first in your heart. To make him the one you praise and worship. To make him your top priority. To make him your deepest joy and your greatest love and your leader and Lord in all things. And so I'm preaching a seven-point sermon this morning. Um, You know how, in fact, it might be even ten points, depending on how you define points, but there we go. We're going for it this morning. Um, Seven reasons to make Christ your number one from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 29. And the first reason you should make Christ your top priority is this. Christ is the image of the unseen God the Father. Verse 15 Christ is described by Paul and he says he is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 19, Paul says, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, what do those verses mean? Well, this is what they mean. Do you want to know what God the Father in heaven is like? Look at his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God in heaven is like, you must look at the Son, Jesus Christ. None of us in this room have ever met God the Father face to face. He is in heaven and we are here on earth. How do we know what he's like? Well, we read in the Gospels of Jesus Christ and we see the perfect image of the Father in the Son. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He shares the divine nature with the Father because he is the Son. If you have a Son, your Son will have human nature because you are a human. You pass on your nature to your children. And so if you have a a child, that child will have the human nature. But God the Father, since he is divine, when 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 his Son has the divine nature, he is the Son of the Father, so he is fully divine. He has the divine nature. And Christ is one being with the Father. They are two distinct persons. We believe in Trinitarian theology. So God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three persons who enjoy relationship with one another and yet one God, one being. This is a mystery profound in Christianity that that God is one and yet three distinct persons. So the Son and the Father are distinct persons and yet one being. And therefore, the fullness of God dwells in the person of Christ. Not partial divinity. It's not 50% of God in the person of Christ. No, it's 100%. It's the fullness of God in Christ. He is fully God. He has the divine nature. He's one being with the Father. He is God. And therefore, when God the Son walks on the earth in human flesh, he reveals what God the Father in heaven is like. This is extremely important for us to get hold of as Christians. It's really important for two reasons. The first reason it's important is the only reason we know God as Father is because he has revealed himself in the person of his Son. So we pray to our Father in heaven. We know that God is a Father because his revelation of himself came through his Son. Do you see? That's why we pray to our Father in heaven, because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, his Son on earth. 
But the second reason this theology is really, really important is because some very, very foolish people try to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. There's some people who say, we like Jesus. Jesus was nice. He was a nice guy. We like Jesus. But we don't like God. We don't like God in heaven. Now, if you said that to Paul, Paul would say, what a ridiculous and embarrassing thing to say. That's so foolish. To say you like Jesus but don't like the Father, this is a nonsense to me because Jesus is the, envis- the image of the unseen God. He is the fullness of God in human flesh. And that means when Christ feeds the hungry, we're seeing the Father's heart for the poor and the lost. When Christ heals the sick on earth, we're seeing the Father's heart for wholeness amongst people. When Christ preaches, he's preaching words from the Father. When Christ dies and shows his love for us in dying on the cross, he is showing us the Father's love for us because he's the image of the unseen God. There is no wedge between the Father and the Son. If you like Jesus, you like the Father because the Son reveals the Father. He is the perfect image. He is the fullness of God in human flesh. That's where we're starting this morning. The first reason to make Christ the number one priority in your life is because he is the fullness of God. The second reason to make Christ your top priority is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now Paul uses firstborn not to mean that Christ was the first thing created. We know that Christ is God and therefore he has no beginning because God is eternal. He has ever been and will ever be and Christ, God the Son, is the same. There's not a birth moment for the Son. He has always eternally been the Son with the Father. So we know that Jesus isn't the firstborn in the sense that he was created first. In fact, you can see this in the verses, because in verse 16, it's, Paul says he's the firstborn of creation because all things were created by him. So it would be a nonsense to say he was the first created thing because all things were created by him. That would not make sense at all. So when Paul uses the word firstborn, He's not talking about biological firstborn. He's not talking about a creation, a creation moment for Christ. Rather, Paul uses firstborn to speak about the privileges of the eldest son of a king. The eldest son of a king would inherit ruling sovereignty. He would reign after his father. And therefore, when Paul talks about Christ being the firstborn of creation, he's saying Christ deserves the highest honour and he is first. It's, it's an honour. He's the firstborn of honour, not the firstborn of biology. In verse 17, Paul repeats this point in a different way. He says of Christ, he is before all things. In other words, to say that Christ is the firstborn of creation means line up everything in the universe in order of importance. Line it all up. Well, here you have the universe and then you have Christ all the way up here. Ultimate importance, firstborn, ahead of everything else. He's before all things. He's supreme in authority and importance. He is the firstborn son 
and we should treat him as such. Just, just for a moment, do that for your life, by the way. Line up everything in your life in order of importance. I'm only going to give you a few moments for this, so it's a big ask, but just line up in your life everything that you have going for you. What's at the front of the queue? What's the number one thing in your life? What's the firstborn of your life? May it be Jesus Christ, for he is the firstborn of all creation. May he be first in your life, ahead of everything else. Thirdly then, Christ is the creator of all things. Verse 16, by him all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, even the thrones and dominions and kingdoms and rulers and authorities come under Christ's creative power. And in verse 17, Paul tells us, in him all things hold together. In other words, Christ created all things and he also sustains all things, holds it together. In Hebrews, we're told that by the word of his power, God the Son upholds the universe. That means if Jesus Christ is anything less than the creator and sustainer of the universe in your mind, then your understanding of who Jesus is is too small. That's who he is. He's the creator of everything. He's the sustainer of everything in the universe. And we want to honour and worship Jesus for who he really is. And so we need to enlarge our understanding of him. We need to say, yes, Christ is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. As I wrote this sermon, I was just reflecting on what this means for the Christmas story. Isn't the Christmas story extraordinary? Jesus enters into the universe that he himself created. He's born a baby in human flesh. That's a massive, that's a stagger. If Jesus really is the one who created all things and he's the one who sustains the universe, then isn't it extraordinary to think he was born a baby in the midst of creation? If Christ is the creator and the sustainer, when you gaze at the beauty of this world, when you look at the trees, the animals, the sea, the sky, the sights around you, you're gazing at the creative genius of Christ. And that means every moment outside in this world, every, every moment seeing people, seeing animals, seeing all these beautiful things is a moment of worship as you glorify Christ for the things he has created and the things he sustains. The fourth reason from Colossians chapter 1 to make Christ your top priority is this. All things exist for Christ. It's not just that by all things, it's not just that Christ created all things and sustains all things. It's also that everything exists for Christ. Look at the end of verse 16. All things created through him and for him. This is a life altering perspective. Everything in existence is designed to bring glory to Christ. That's a life alter. Do you, have, do you live life that way? As if everything that's been created exists to bring glory to Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote the Narnian series of books, is a Christian. He wrote this fiction story to try and portray some of the truth of the Christian gospel. and um, was also just a great thinker. 
And he said this, let your mind run back up the sunbeam to the sun. By which he meant, if you're in a room like this room and there are beams of light flooding into the room, if you look at the windows, you can see light coming in. Don't just think about the light in the room and what's in the room, but also run up the sunbeam to the source of that light and consider the sun. And of course, he's, he's using this as a metaphor for God. When you enjoy things in creation... Run your mind back up the sunbeam to the source and the creator of the one who has made that thing. Everything that you use and enjoy on this life is an opportunity to bring glory to Christ as you run up the sunbeam to think about the creator, Christ himself. Make every pleasure of life a channel of adoration to the creator, Jesus. I want you to think about your life for a moment. What would it look like if you truly saw everything in existence as an opportunity to adore Jesus Christ? All food that's good to taste and healthy to eat is a pleasure and a provision that draws our mind to Christ, the giver of joy and the provider of all sustenance. Every relationship with other people or every meeting with other people is an opportunity to love like Christ, to show kindness in order to glorify the one who has shown us extraordinary kindness in our lives. Every piece of music or work of art, something created by a human to be enjoyed, but ultimately speaks to us about the creativity of Christ and God's love of beauty. Every ordinary, everyday task, even washing up or brushing your teeth, a moment to do the job well, and I can see my wife rolling her eyes at me because I'm a rubbish, I'm rubbish at washing up, um, but a moment to do the job well because we do everything to the best of our abilities to glorify Christ. Also a moment to honour and thank Christ. When we're washing the dishes, those dishes are only things that we have because Jesus has been good and generous to us. And the food that we have enjoyed is only because of Christ's generosity to us. So every ordinary and everyday task becomes an opportunity to glorify the creator and sustainer of the universe. And in that sense, everything exists for Christ. By him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. He sustains all things and all things exist for him and his glory as well. Follow the sunbeam to the sun. Use everything in creation to glorify Christ. For all things were created for him. Fifthly then, the fifth reason to make Christ your number one is that Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body the church. Now, the human body is a metaphor that Paul is very, very fond of in his letters. He often writes to churches and says, you, church members, you're like parts of the body. You're the hands, you're the feet, you're the fingers, you're the legs. Christ is the head, and he leads us and gives us direction in order that all the parts would work together 
to bless one another and grow together and ultimately to worship God together. Christ is the head. He provides the leadership. He rules over the body and gives it the direction it needs and directs the parts of the body to do his will. And this is, of course, our goal as a local church is to be the body of Christ and to obey the head. We do not presume in our own minds and in our own strength that we know how to do church better than everybody else. We're not relying on the intelligence of the elders in this church. We're not relying on how great and fantastic we are. We are seeking Christ's direction. We are seeking to read his word and understand it and live it out. And we're praying and asking him to direct and guide us as the church because he is the head. He is the shepherd of this church. He is the leader of this church. He is the one we follow. He is the head of the church. So we do that collectively as a local church, but we also ought to do this as individuals as well. I am individually part of the body. I want to serve the body. I want to play my part Lord Jesus, would you guide me? Would you direct my steps? I want to follow the head, the one who's directing my steps. And so, yeah, Lord, I just pray, would you use me according to your infinite wisdom and glory as the head of the church? Sixthly, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He's not just the firstborn of all creation. He's also the firstborn from the dead. He is the resurrected king. We know, don't we, that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. He died because he loved us. He died for me upon the cross. And if you're a Christian, he died for you as well. He carried your sin. He took your sin to the grave in order that you might be forgiven and you might have a relationship with God the Father. But death could not hold our Lord and Saviour. He broke free. The power of the Spirit raised him from the dead. And he rose again in glory. And when he rose from the dead, our Lord and Saviour Christ paved a way for Christians to follow. Do you know, everyone on earth has a big, big problem. Every human being on this earth has a problem. And the problem is death. We all die. I think Jeff said in his sermon series, this is a stat that no one can argue with. One out of one people die. 100% of people die. And that's a big problem because it means we can't achieve all that we want to in this life. We have a limited period in which to live life. And so we're never going to get everything done that we want to get done. We have fear in our lives because of death. That there might be a sudden end to our life and then it would all be gone and all disappear. Or maybe we fear that we would die slowly, losing strength, maybe even mental capabilities over time. Death is a big, big problem. It casts a shadow over all of life and the lives of everyone in this room and the lives of everyone outside of this room. But Christ, and only Christ, has made a way to eradicate the power and the fear of death in our lives. He rose from the grave. He was the firstborn from the dead. He's paved a way so that Christians need not fear death because we have a better promise and a better future to look to, that we will follow in the footsteps of our Saviour. And though we die, we go to sleep, to be raised, to be with Christ in heaven and to one day enter into the new heavens and the new earth and to live in perfect paradise and peace with God forever and ever. Every Christian, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ 
will follow the firstborn from the dead into resurrected life. One thing I love about this passage is that Christ is portrayed as the giver of life in that he created all things, but he's also the giver of life in the resurrection, isn't he, as well? He's the firstborn of creation in that he leads all people into life in the first place, and he's the firstborn from the dead, and he gives life to all who put their faith in him. And that means you can settle, you have a choice, you can settle for for life that will end in death, and then you will be judged before Jesus Christ. You can settle for that life, a life lived under the shadow of the fear of death. Or you can believe in Christ, the firstborn from the dead, and know that you have received eternal life from God the Father. For me, it's an easy choice, believe in Christ today and receive this glorious promise of everlasting life. Follow the firstborn from the dead, our resurrected King Jesus. Make him number one in your life, and that is an eternal decision, an eternal decision, because it transforms not only our life here on earth, but also our lives in the age to come. Seventh, the seventh reason to make Christ your top priority, the number one in your hearts, is that Christ brings reconciliation. Verse 20 says, through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And verse 21, I'll keep going. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You know, I could preach a whole sermon series on those three verses. They're so packed full of glorious, glorious truth about the salvation that Christ has won for us. But let me just point out a few things to see in those three verses. Firstly, you were once alienated and hostile to God. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you're still in that place. That word alienated means God is a stranger to you. You're estranged from God. And that word hostile means that your deeds and your thoughts are not pleasing in God's sight. You have rebelled against God by not obeying his commands, by ignoring him, by not worshipping him, by not having a relationship with him. You have become hostile to God in your deeds and your thoughts. You are a rebel and a traitor of the true king in that sense, and so you become an enemy. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, you are a stranger to God. And you are an enemy of God. And all of us who are Christians in this room were once in that place. We were once alienated from God and hostile to him in our mind and in our deeds. Sin was the problem. Sin was that barrier that created a distance between us and God. That's why we're strangers, because sin has has piled up and made us distant from God. All the things we've done wrong is like a barrier, so we can't have this relationship with God. And of course, sin is rebellion and hostility. So it's our sin, it's our wrongdoing that caused us to be hostile to God. But it was Christ's desire to deal with that problem. It was Christ's desire to rescue us into a relationship with God the Father and into a closeness and nearness with God. He wanted to bring us near. He wanted to make us friends, not enemies of God. And so in order to do something, in order to achieve that, 
he had to do something about sin. And we've already spoken about the cross, but it, it's, it, it doesn't bother me to speak about the cross multiple times over and over again, because the cross is the place where Christ does something about sin. He carries our sin in his body. He bears the punishment that all sinners deserve by dying. And so every Christian, every person who places their faith in Christ, a great exchange takes place. Christ takes our sin and we take his righteousness and his blamelessness. Believers in Christ are blameless. So you can come near to God with confidence. We no longer need to be strangers to God. We can call him Father and we can come close to him and have a relationship with him. We don't need to be hesitant because our sins have been taken away by Christ upon the cross. Isn't it glorious? Though we were once strangers, now we are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And believers in Christ are no longer enemies, are no longer hostile to God with rebellious thoughts and deeds because those deeds and thoughts have been taken away by Christ on the cross. And so we say, because of what Christ has done, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done, we say we are friends with God. We are friends with the one who created the universe. We are friends with the one who has no beginning and no end, the eternal one. We're friends with the one who knows everything there is to know. We are friends with the all-powerful God. God is our friend because Christ has reconciled us to him. This is what Christ has done for us upon the cross. He's turned strangers into sons and daughters. He's turned enemies into friends. Oh, what a reason to make Christ first in your life, that he would reconcile you to God the Father. It's a glorious, glorious truth. And it's one of seven truths that I've unpacked from this passage this morning. So let me remind you of those glorious, glorious truths we've seen in Colossians chapter 1. Seven reasons that we should make Christ number one, preeminent in all things. He is the reconciler who reconciles us to God the Father. He is the resurrected one, the resurrected king. He is the head of the church. He is the one for whom everything exists. He is the creator of all things. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the unseen God the Father. Therefore, let us make Christ preeminent. If Christ is preeminent and glorious and first in all those amazing ways, he should also be first in our hearts and first in our lives. And so I want to end, I told you there might be seven, uh, seven points or might be ten points, but I want to end with three applications. Uh, it's theological and glorious truth that I've proclaimed this morning, or really just that I've just read, really, to be honest. But it's amazing truth. How does that change our lives? What does that do in our lives? And so I've got three applications this morning. Firstly, it's the one I've been preaching the whole time. Make Christ first in your life. If Christ truly is preeminent and glorious over creation and the church, as Paul argues for in Colossians, then we must make him first in our lives as well. And if you want to do that this morning, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the thousandth time, say in your hearts, Lord Jesus, you're my number one. Before money, before family, before my career, before popularity, before health, before even the church, Christ, you are first. 
You are my first love, Lord Jesus. You are my top priority, Lord Jesus. You are my deepest joy, Lord Jesus. You are the one I obey, Lord Jesus. You are the one I follow. It's you, Christ. It's you, Jesus. May that be true today, tomorrow and forever. The second application I want to bring this morning is this, that we continue in the faith. Look at verse 23. Paul's just taught us that we've been reconciled to God, that we we will be presented blameless before God. And then he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, if Christ is so magnificent and so powerful and glorious, it's natural to trust him. It's, it makes sense to put your faith in him. And that's what Paul wants for his readers. That's what Paul wants for us. That's what God wants for us this morning. That because of Christ's magnificence, because of his preeminence in all things, we would just keep trusting him and keep putting our faith in him, and keeping the hope of the gospel. And so today is a day for you to continue in faith. As I say, it might be the first time you put your faith in Jesus today. You say, yes, I want to put my faith in Jesus and receive this wonderful salvation of reconciliation. But if you're a Christian, much of being a Christian is just keeping on in the faith, keeping trusting Jesus day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. And so often in my prayer life, I'm just saying in my heart, Jesus, I just trust you with this. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this is happening. I'm struggling with this. Lord, I'm just staying in the faith. I'm keeping trusting you because you are the firstborn of creation. You are the firstborn from the dead. You're the head of the church. You're the one who reconciles me to God the Father. You are the image of the invisible, unseen God the Father. You are the fullness of God, Lord Jesus. And so I'm just trusting you. I'm just continuing in the faith in this moment. And so that's the second application. Continue in the faith. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. And thirdly, third application from Colossians 1 this morning is proclaim Christ. Verse 24 to 29 are all about Paul's ministry proclaiming the gospel. And those verses are quite hard, actually. And so I think I might do a video during the week, perhaps, just to explain some of the little intricacies of those verses, because I don't have time to go through the detail of those verses. But in general, those verses are about Paul being a minister of the gospel, proclaiming the mystery. It was once a mystery. No, no one knew how God was going to bring salvation. He'd spoken by the prophets, but there was mystery involved. But then Christ came and the mystery was revealed. He was the saviour of the world. He was God in human flesh. And so Paul has the joy of proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming this mystery that was once unknown, but has now been revealed in the person of Christ. And we have that same privilege as Christians. We have that same joy to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim mystery to other people who do not yet understand it. And I want us to look at verse 28 in particular, because this is what Paul says about his ministry. Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. If Christ is preeminent in all things, he must surely also be preeminent in our proclamation of the gospel. When you share the gospel with friends and family, 
Speak about the magnificence of Christ. Speak about the forgiveness of Christ. Speak about the resurrection of Christ. Speak about Christ. Yeah, sharing personal testimony is fantastic. It's a really good way to, almost as a hook, to get people interested, to say, yes, Jesus has transformed my life in this way. This is where I was, and this is where I am now. Personal testimony is so powerful and so wonderful. If we just share personal testimony... We're missing Christ. We need to proclaim Christ when we share the gospel. And to preach the glory of Christ is such a joy. And so when you share, tell people about Jesus. Last week I said, when you minister, share about grace. Don't make Christianity sound like a bunch of rules to follow, but preach about grace. If you're preaching grace, you will also preach Christ. And that's what we need to do, is share Jesus with people. Because he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the creator of all things. All things exist for him. He's the reconciler. He's the one we need to proclaim. And so that's my third bit of application this morning. Let's be those who proclaim Christ. Can we, with Paul, say, him we proclaim. So Christ is the image of the unseen God. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the creator of all things. All things exist for his glory. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he is the one who reconciles us to the Father. Therefore, make him first in your life today. Continue in faith. Keep trusting him day by day. And proclaim this glorious, stupendous, wonderful Christ whom we love and serve and follow. Let's come to pray. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes as we pray. I just want to say, if there's anyone who actually wants, wants to say with, with kind of movement, I want to make Christ first in my life, whether that's for the first time you want to say that or whether it's for the thousandth time, you want to recommit, you maybe you want to confess, you want to say, actually, Christ has been second or third in my list of priorities over the last few days and weeks. If that's you and you want to say, yes, I want, I want to make Christ first, then I just invite you just to raise your hand. Everyone's eyes are closed. No one's going to see you responding. But I think there's just a response say, yes, Lord Jesus, forgive me when I'm not made you number one. I want to, make, I want to prioritize you now. You're, you're going to be the first in my heart. You're going to be my greatest joy. You're going to be the one I follow and serve. Maybe you just want to raise your hand and say, yes, I'm responding to this. And let me pray for all of us, but especially for those people who are responding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. He is so spectacularly glorious. We thank you that he has revealed you. You're you're our father in heaven. We've not seen you face to face, but in Christ, we have seen the perfect image of the father. We know that in Christ, the fullness of God dwells. He is God in human flesh. And so we know what you're like, Father, because you've revealed yourself in God the Son in Jesus Christ. So we love Christ for that. We love that he's the firstborn of creation. He holds the highest honour in all of creation. We thank you that he is the creator of all things. We thank you that all things exist for his glory. We thank you that he is the head of the church. We thank you that he was risen from the grave. He did not remain in the grave, but he's the firstborn from the dead, defeating death and its power and offering the gift of eternal life. We thank you that he reconciles us to you, Heavenly Father. We were once enemies. We were once hostile. We were once strangers. But now we are sons and daughters and friends of you, Lord God. And so we thank you for Christ. We love Christ. And we pray that he would always be first in our lives. 
I pray, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make that so in our hearts, that he would be our our greatest love and the one who we just want to serve with everything that we are. May he be preeminent in creation, but also preeminent in our lives. I pray you deepen our faith. Keep us trusting in Christ day by day. And I pray you would make us ministers of the gospel, that you would place the name of Christ, the deeds of Christ, and the glories of Christ upon our lips to share with the people around us, that we would do so in a winsome and wise and relational way, Lord. But I just pray that each of us would proclaim the glories of Jesus. And so we say, Lord, we're sorry for the times, Jesus, where you haven't been first in our lives, where we've prioritized sin, where we've idolized other things. And we pray, may you be our God. May you be the one we worship. May you be first in everything. Every second of the day, may Christ be first. Jesus, be our number one in everything we say and think and do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.